week following Abraham's journey of faith. And I think by God's design, this 14th week dovetails very well into the rhythms of the year, into this Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as I said earlier, where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And with shouts of, Hosanna, a great crowd welcomes Jesus by laying palm branches before the donkey upon which he rode, and they praise God that the Messiah had finally come to Zion, to Jerusalem, the long-awaited Son, the promise he had arrived, the promises of God being fulfilled before their very eyes, and they worshiped. I think that scene that we, that we can picture so clearly, at least if we've, if we've been in the Bible long or in the church long, that scene of people lining the road and Jesus riding on that donkey and the palm branches and the exclamation, it's a scene of worshipful ecstasy. But then, of course, we know that those praises shouted outside of the city take a dark turn inside of the city in less than a week's time, only a few days Right before Pontius Pilate, another great crowd shouts, crucify him. And the Messiah, God's one and only son, would be murdered on Golgotha. It's as if these two crowds came from different cities. Two different Jerusalems. Two different crowds seeing the same Jesus, but their responses could not have been more different. These exact same themes are born in Genesis 21, where we are this morning, where we see another promised son arrive, and two women who represent very different Jerusalems, very different responses to the promise. So as we look at Genesis 21, verses 1 through 21, I want you to see the eternal covenant truths that are woven into this passage, and I want you to see, most ultimately, who the Son of Promise is, the great Son of Promise, the preeminent Son of Promise. But let's read this. Chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, And the Lord did did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Father, once more, we need your spirit to speak. Once more, just to follow every other moment of our lives where we need your spirit to speak to us and guide us. But now, especially as we come before your word, speak to us through it. We take this for granted. Let us not. The almighty creator of the universe, you, supremely powerful, speaks. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And in spite of all my frailties, give me a mouth to speak. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Over 25 years have now passed from when God first made covenant with Abraham and promised him land and descendants and blessing. And we have seen now since that moment, 25 years ago, Abraham's journey filled with ups and downs, moments of victory and moments of defeat, and he's done what's right in the eyes of the Lord, and he's done what's wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And during all of that time, in the midst of their waiting, time is ticking away. He made the promise, and then five years pass, and then ten years pass, and there is no sun, and time is running out, and they're getting older. And so Abraham and Sarah begin to worry. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. He made this promise, but there's no fulfillment. So they take things into their own hands. Sarah comes up with the idea. She says, take my servant woman, Hagar, this Egyptian woman. Marry her. Maybe she'll give you an heir. The plan works. Hagar bears Abraham, a son. His name is Ishmael. And with Ishmael is born a conflict that will last until the Lord closes history. A conflict between faith and works. Shortly after Ishmael comes of age, around 13 years old, God promises Abraham another son born of Sarah. 
And this son will be the promised son. This son, through this son, the covenant will flow, and his name shall be Isaac. God tells Abraham that Isaac will be born in about a year's time. And then that narrative of promise and covenant and hope and joy is violently interrupted by a series of disasters, which we've been looking at over the past few weeks. There's fire in the valley of Sidim, and Sodom and Gomorrah are reduced to ash, condemned forever. And then Lot descends into scandal and disgrace, and his life ends in some obscure cave. And then Abraham escapes to the wilderness, and then Sarah is kidnapped and taken into the harem of a foreign king. And right on the eve of fulfillment, God's promises appear like it's impossible God does not forget his word and his plan will not fail. Miraculously, he restores Sarah to Abraham, unharmed, unviolated, just in time. Right while they are sojourning in Gerar, the same kingdom where Sarah was taken captive, while they are sojourning in Gerar, God visits Sarah. See that in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which, the, which God had spoken to him. So when we read God visit Sarah, it doesn't mean that he sat down with Sarah and they had tea together. It means that God did something miraculous to Sarah's 90-year-old womb. And let's not forget Abraham's 100-year-old capabilities. Sarah conceives at the exact time God had promised. Remember this from Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come for her, come from her, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him, Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And that time had come. We must see that no amount of human effort could have brought Isaac into the world. In the, in the near disastrous events, or indeed the disastrous events preceding conception, and in the circumstances of conception, and in the medical impossibility of a 90-year-old carrying a birth to term or carrying a, a child to term, and in the kings that would rise from Sarah's womb, in all of these things, they could only be by the hand of God. We're all appeared figuratively dead. God gives life. And Isaac is born. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham names his son Isaac, circumcising him on the eighth day. So God had given the promised son, and now in response, Abraham acts in covenant obedience as God had commanded him. Remember those commands again from Genesis 17? God said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations. So by circumcising his son on the eighth day and naming him Isaac, as the Lord had said, Abraham's upholding his end of the covenant. It's covenant faithfulness. But notice that Abraham's obedience was not required in order for God to act. No, God acted, giving him a son, and obedience is the happy response to God's faithfulness. Obedience is the happy response to God's faithfulness. And this is the nature, this is the essence of covenant with God right here. First God acts, and he demonstrates his wisdom and his power and his grace and his love. And then we obey joyfully as we are in awe of the wonders he has wrought. Our obedience to God is not, will never be, cannot be forced servitude. No, our obedience to God is free and abounding worship, an overflow out of what he has done for us. And so we look upon his works, filled with joy, we obey him. It's our heart's desire to do it because we see his good faithfulness. So as Abraham and Sarah look into the face of their impossible baby boy, their hearts overflow with joy in what God has done. Naming him Isaac, circumcising him, these requirements were no burden at all. They were a happy delight. And we see that joy expressed in the very next verse, in verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Remember back in chapter 17 and 18, when Abraham and Sarah first hear God's promise that, <laughs> that Sarah would conceive and bear a child, their first response is to laugh in doubt. Yeah, right, God. 90 and 100 years old, And so as a result of their laughter and doubt, God says that they should name their son Isaac. Isaac, which is a form of the Hebrew word for laughter. So when Sarah uses the word laughter twice in verse 6, it's a pun on Isaac's name. Her laughter of doubt and, and Abraham's is now laughter of astonishment and joy. Look at what the Lord has done. Here is this precious promised Son, Abraham is the one in an official capacity to name the boy Isaac. But here with these words, it is Sarah who gives that name significance. How great the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Look carefully at the wording of verse 7. Do you see verse 7? Sarah says, Who would have said, that Sarah would nurse children. Children. But she has one son. This 
is truly a pronouncement of faith. Sarah looks into the eyes of her son and she sees the promises of God. That nations would come from him. That kings would be born of this line. And that through this boy, this little baby boy, the earth would be blessed. By faith, as Sarah nurses Isaac, she is nurturing nations. If Abraham is the father of our faith, then Sarah is the mother of it. So far in every passage detailing Abraham's journey, Abraham's the primary speaker. Oftentimes, Sarah doesn't say a word. It's always Abraham who speaks. But when the promised son arrives, Abraham is silent. And it is Sarah who speaks. She is the primary speaker. And here in Isaac's birth, Sarah's covenantal significance now comes to its consummation and she foreshadows these glories that are to come when the ultimate son of promise is born in Bethlehem and when Mary likewise erupts in praise, Mary the daughter of Sarah, both mothers of promise, both mothers of kings. But just like when that Christ child is born, a shadow is soon cast over the joy of Isaac's birth. Verse 8, we read, The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom he had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So Isaac's about three years old here, which is the traditional age of weaning. And Abraham throws this party. Joy, celebration, and it soon sours. Abraham, or sorry, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. Another pun on Isaac's name. But this is not happy laughter. This is mockery. It's sinister which explains Sarah's very strong reaction to it. Remember, chapter 17, Ishmael came of age around 13 years old. Then another year has elapsed, and now Isaac, another year was elapsed until Isaac was born. Now Isaac is three, which puts Ishmael around the age of 17. And so it would seem that Sarah is both scared and angry as she observes this young man scorning her toddler. You know, but Ishmael's mockery should not come to a surprise at us because we're told about this. When Abraham impregnated Hagar, Sarah immediately regrets her plan and she drives Hagar away and then alone and vulnerable in the wilderness, God speaks promises regarding Hagar's unborn son and mixed into those promises we find this word of warning. Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now a young man, 17 years old, God's warning about Ishmael is coming true. He really seems like a difficult person, and he mocks his little half-brother. 
Referring to this very moment, the Apostle Paul says that Ishmael, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So you put these pieces together and you get the sense that Ishmael, 17 years old, is bullying the toddler, hurting him, ridiculing him, laughing at him. And what would you do if you were the parent? Things like this also don't just spring out of nowhere, but it's a manifestation of a greater pattern. It's no wonder that Sarah's reaction is as strong as it is. And as soon as Hagar had given birth to Ishmael, there's strife between Hagar and Sarah, constant contention. There are some people, some people who say that the Bible condones polygamy. You know, Abraham had two wives, Hagar and Sarah. No. If there's any confusion, let's clear that up right now. The Bible never condones polygamy or, let's say, polyamorous relationships. If nothing else, the Bible again and again reveals that polyamorous relationships are train wrecks, the corrupted contrivances of man, not according to God's perfect design. And this is just a glaring example of that. Sarah wants Hagar gone and that rotten son of hers too. She wants to officially, finally, forever disinherit both of them. I think she's afraid of what Isaac may do down the road, and she is certainly angry at what she's seeing in this moment. Verse 11, we read, The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. I think on a level it is easy to sympathize with Abraham's distress here. He loves his son, his firstborn son. How could he not love him? However difficult he might be, that doesn't erase his love for him. I think there are some in this room that know this kind of love. A love that endures challenges, and a love that hopes for change, and a love that follows them as they wander, and a love that's filled with pain. It's a reflection of God's love. But even still, there does come a time when love needs to be firm, even hard. And Abraham is visited now by God. The night after the party, God visits Abraham in a, apparently in a dream, and he affirms Sarah's demand. God tells him to send Ishmael away. But see that it is no cold condemnation without hope. No, God comforts Abraham with promises, as he always does, comforts his children with promises. Because when, when Ishmael leaves Abraham's care, he will prosper. Ishmael, who, who bears the mark of circumcision, the covenant mark, 
He will become the father of a nation. He will become many people. And as tradition would have it, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people with us even today. So through Sarah's demand and God's plan and Abraham's obedience, we're confronted with this stark reality of God's election. God has always and he will always choose with whom he will hold covenantal relationship. We do not choose God He has chosen us. And if you know God, you know you didn't make yourself love him. But it's because of his great love that any love is within you. It's because he has chosen you that you are able to choose him. And then as we read in Romans chapter 9, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But remember, God's election is not without reason, it's not arbitrary. Ishmael's life is marked by the words that we read earlier. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone. Everyone includes God. For to mock the covenant son as Ishmael had done is to mock God. Proverbs 3 verses 34 and 35. Toward the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but the fool gets disgrace. Genesis 21. God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael is finalized. And yet despite Ishmael's obstinacy, difficulty, despite his separation now from the covenant, God still chooses to bless him in spite of himself in spite of Ishmael. And Abraham can do nothing at this point except to trust in Jehovah Magan and trusting his firstborn to God. And then in verse 14 we read, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. So the next morning, after he receives that dream, Abraham sends his firstborn son away with his mother, his wife. Despite the personal anguish that that must have caused, Abraham's obedience is complete And I believe that God is using this scene, at least in part, to prepare Abraham for an even greater act of obedience. For the time will come when God will ask Abraham not to send Isaac away, but to sacrifice him, to kill his son. 
And Abraham will again demonstrate complete obedience and it will become the greatest Old Testament picture of the day when God the Father sacrifices His one and only Son. But now sending away His Son, Abraham places this bag of provisions on Hagar's shoulder. Though Ishmael is about 17, the continual reference to him as a child or a boy is a reminder of the relationship that he has with his parents. He's a, he's a young man, but to his father and mother, he's their little boy. Nothing changes that. He's precious. But alas, as Isaac is weaned from his mother, now Ishmael is weaned from his father. And of the vast riches of Abraham's household, the only inheritance given to his son, Ishmael, is a little bit of food a little bit of water. Verse 15, When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of my child, of the child. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. At most, the distance between Gerar and Beersheba is only 20 miles. Like verse 14 says, though, Hagar and Ishmael, and Ishmael wandered. They had nowhere to go. Where would they go? So they wander, eventually ending up in the area of Beersheba, having exhausted their provisions. And it's a hot and arid land. With no water left, it would not take long for dehydration to set in. And the tongue begins to stick to the roof of the mouth and the head begins to pound and your energy evaporates. So Hagar directs her son to the shade. At least in the shade, maybe the process would slow down a little bit. She staggers about a bow shot away, which is far enough away to be out of earshot. She cannot hear the cries of her son, so she too begins to weep there. But they're so dehydrated that it's likely no tears fall. On the verge of death, with nowhere to go and no one to help them, this is a hopeless situation. Her only recourse is to cry out to God. The God of the covenant from which they have just been expelled. So it would seem... There, in that darkest hour, comes bursting in God's covenantal kindness. Amazingly, in verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God speaks to Hagar. And he affirms those same promises that he had spoken to Abraham. So Hagar and Ishmael, they may no longer live in the tents of covenant, but because of Abraham's love for them, because he is the father of Ishmael, God upholds his covenant blessing for Hagar and Ishmael. Not because of them, 
because of his covenant. And Ishmael will not die. No, the opposite. He will become a great nation. How wonderful that God has spoken to Hagar. You see the significance of that? This is the second time too. When Sarah temporarily banished Hagar back in chapter 16, God first spoke to Hagar. So this is now the second time. But do you know there is not one recorded moment where God speaks to Sarah? Not one. But he has now twice spoken to Hagar, the slave woman. And God will provide. Verse 19. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy and gave the boy a drink. So one of the effects of severe dehydration is confusion. Perhaps that's why Hagar didn't see the well right beside her. Maybe additionally God is drawing this incredible and merciful parallel from the very next chapter as Isaac lays on an altar of sacrifice, God will open Abraham's eyes to a ram, a ram that was in the thicket apparently the whole time. And now here with Ishmael on the verge of death, God opens Hagar's eyes to a well that was apparently there all along. Seeing that her son is dying, now there is a well of living water where there was death. God gives life. And he proves it over and over and over again. Our God loves resurrection. God's provision towards blessing, uh, God's provision and blessing towards Hagar and Ishmael is an enduring reminder that God is willing to extend his grace even to outsiders. And God was with the boy in verse 20. He grew up. He lived a wife for him from the land of Egypt. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Ishmael will need to become proficient with the bow. If he wants to eat, the wilderness will require it. And, as, if, as the Lord has spoken, if his hand is going to be against everyone's and everyone's against his, then he's going to need to hold a bow in that hand. And he will live the rest of his days exiled to the wilderness of Paran. You see El Paran down there in the south. We did see it for a moment. And Paran is just to the west. The wilderness of Paran is just to the west of that. He lives in an absolutely desolate area. Hagar, who is herself an Egyptian, will find for her son a wife from her own people. And it is the last act of Hagar in Genesis. We hear no more of her. And Ishmael's separation is also complete. He's the son of a slave woman. He's born from man's unbelief. He's cast from covenantal society. He's married to an Egyptian. He's remembered for, her, for his hostility. And he dwells in the wilderness. And Ishmael does not appear again in Genesis until it's time to bury his father, Abraham. He is now fully disinherited. 
The fact that his name is not used once in this entire passage is a final proof that Ishmael is cut off. Salvation and blessing and relationship with God only and always come through the Son of Promise. There is no other way but through the Son of Promise. And if it isn't already glaringly obvious, the Son of Promise is most preeminently Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 21 through 31. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, listen. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In the context of Galatians, the law represents the efforts of man. What you can do to make yourself good enough. But we know that no one can please God or enter his promises through achievement, through self-actualization. And we see that when Abraham and Sarah use Hagar to bear a son. And it was just that, them trying to work their way into the promises of God. But Hagar corresponds to the Jerusalem of self-righteousness. The Jerusalem that tried to achieve righteousness apart from God's promises. Not wanting the promises of God, but wanting to do it myself. No one can do this. No one can pick themselves up by their bootstraps and become righteous. It's madness. Humanity is fallen and wicked, and you know within yourself the absolute brokenness. You are marked by. And so to try to work your way into righteousness is to become a slave, always working, never arriving, perpetually trying to prove yourself righteous, and you cannot do it. 
descendants or the children of Hagar are perpetually bound by desperation, marked by determination and planning and strategizing and working. And if somebody slightly challenges their self-made position, they are compelled to mock them and judge them and slight them as we saw Ishmael do to Isaac. And when the son of promise is seen, the self-righteous do not want him. They are blind to their need and they gather themselves together to laugh at him and cry, crucify him. They are the Jerusalem that kills the Messiah. But Sarah corresponds to the Jerusalem that is from above, the Jerusalem of freedom and faith. Jesus is the promised, the promised Son, God's supreme gift to humanity, the only way and the only truth and the only life, and to trust in Him is your only hope. It is to be united to Him. You trust that all the promises of, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. To trust in him is to enter into covenant blessing. It is to become a child of Sarah. It is to be born again from this new Jerusalem. Trust in Jesus. It is the Jerusalem that cries, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus, you don't need to prove yourself. Because he's done all the proving for you. When you could not be righteous, his righteous perfectly stands on your behalf. And when you, be, when you deserve to be disinherited and cast into the eternal wilderness, Christ enters that wilderness, he overcomes it, and then he floods it with rivers of living water. And if Christ has birthed such glories of faith within you, then you, brothers and sisters, are now free to rest in the works of Christ because of his faithfulness. And may it be your joy to live in obedience to him, to follow him, to be conformed to his image. And so instead of mockery and judgment, allow your heart to be filled with grace and your lips with honor. As Christ has done for you, do to others. And finally, and most amazingly, beyond all imagining, Beyond all deserving, by trusting that Jesus did these things on your behalf, you are united to him and receive the full inheritance of God. All the treasures of the kingdom of heaven are yours. Paul also writes in Galatians, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have been adopted by faith. Which means that you were Ishmael. You are Ishmael. 
Your hand is against everyone's, and everyone's is against yours. It is Christ who is Isaac. It is Christ who is the one of promise. So to not (laughs) remain Ishmael, we cannot look on the son of promise and scorn and mock. We must look at him with joyful laughter. We We must worship him. We must follow him, obey him. We must want to be united to him. This Palm Sunday the very greatest thing that you can do is to look on the Son of Promise and with all your heart cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And as Abraham and Sarah look upon their precious Son of Promise, let our hearts be filled with that same joyful laughter in the presence of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning. He is our Lord and our Savior, our Son of promise. We must go to Him. Let's pray. What wonders You have wrought. Father, we see Your glories in part in Isaac, in full in Christ. What glory that you would give your one and only Son to bring us into covenant inheritance and covenant blessing and most profoundly covenant relationship. He has become our covenant. And in every person hearing these words, Lord, birth faith. And if faith is there, birth more that we might believe to the very core of our being, turning away from the sins that so ensnare us and the working that shackles us. Walk in the freedom of sonship that you give to us through Jesus Christ, our promise. Thank you, Father, for your lavish generosity that you rescued us from the wilderness and brought us into the tents of covenant. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. In just a moment.